Hello, I'm Neil Ferguson, the Millbank Family Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, and I'm welcoming you to this special summer edition of Goodfellows. Bill Whalen's on vacation this week. We sometimes allow him to do that. So I'm sitting in uh, the moderator's chair. Uh, just a brief reminder, if you like this show, hit the like button because that helps us reach more viewers. And if you want more content like this, click on the subscribe button and auto-magically receive all of the video content the Hoover Institution posts to its YouTube channel including HR's excellent show, Battlegrounds, and the perennial uncommon knowledge with Peter Robinson. All right, that's enough promotion. Let's get to the show. As usual, I'm joined by my fellow good fellows, John Cochran, the Rosemary and Jack Anderson Senior Fellow here at Hoover, and HR McMaster, Ford and Michelle Ajami Senior Fellow, one economist, one general, and one historian. And I thought we, we, we'd just get together uh, this July, kind of has a midsummer feel to it, and talk about the, the big issues of the moment uh, and get some update, uh, some updating from the experts. So HR, let me, let me start with you. There's a war going on. It's lasted quite a bit longer than uh, most pundits expected back in February. I think we're approaching the six-month mark of the Russian war against Ukraine. How's it going? Is Russia winning? Russia's not winning, Neil, but I think the, your point about the length of the war is important. Uh, this war has been going on since 2014. I think it's important to remember that 15,000 Ukrainians were killed uh, in the period 2014 to February 23rd of this year. And of course, this renewed offensive kicked off on the 24th of February. And as I believed it from the very beginning, this is going to be a years-long war. And I think there are a number of reasons for that, Neil. One of them is that I don't think either side has the military capacity and ability to accomplish its war aims. Russia's, of course, aims are expansive. Initially, they hoped to subjugate all of Ukraine in a very quick offensive, anticipating that Ukrainian will and, and their military would just collapse. Of course, those assumptions turned, turned out to be uh, you know, uh, uh, radically uh, uh, flawed. Um, and 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 also the, the Ukrainians uh, object and, and Lavrov just made a statement, of course, recently saying you know, that they do have to territorial ambitions beyond Donetsk and Luhansk. And of course, the Ukrainians, having suffered so much, uh, have made it their objective, I think, in the interim objective, at least, to retake the territories that Russia has gained since February 24th. And Russia uh, now is engaged in, in a grinding offensive in the east where it's mainly using the bombardment of cities and towns and rubbling residential areas, committing mass murder of innocents, and then occupying that territory with its maneuver forces. It still does not have, the Russian forces still do not have the ability to conduct fire and maneuver in close combat with defending enemy. And they're not going to be able to generate it. They're also not going to be able to generate the logistics capacity or the reserve manpower to be able to conduct a sustained offensive, again, oriented on Kiev and Odessa, the two key cities that would allow them to unlock uh, Ukraine uh, and choke it off uh, and, and then and then subjugate it. The Ukrainians, on the other hand, are beginning to build capability and capacity that will allow them to take some of these local counterattacks and transition them into counteroffensives. The town to watch for that is Kherson, 
where they're focusing a large part of their counterattack efforts and are making some gains, appear to be making some preparations by attacking a bridge that is a key supply line to the Russians who are in control of Kherson at the moment. And the reason this is important, Neil, is that this will allow the Ukrainians to begin to, to relieve the chokehold that Russia has put on Ukraine along the coast of the of the of the Black Sea and allow Ukraine to begin to to to, to regain some economic viability as well as marshal some additional combat power. Also very important and what we've been tracking are the integration of some of these longer range fire systems, the, the American HIMAR system, for example. And these are immensely important because when they are combined with satellite intelligence and imagery from unmanned aerial systems, they are very effective in a counter-battery mode, and that is destroying the Russian artillery pieces and rocket launchers that are inflicting so much harm on Ukrainian civilians. And I think this is going to be a big a big game changer uh, in terms of Russia's ability to sustain you know, this material schlacht or this, you know, this, this, uh, you know, this uh, focus on relying on, on artillery. Um, and you've seen already just with the first systems delivered, uh, the destruction of some of the ammunition depots that are really important. I mean, it takes a hell of a lot of artillery rounds to, to rubble a city. And then, of course, I think the other element of this to watch is can the Ukrainians develop themselves those close combat capabilities to conduct fire and maneuver with skilled infantry, and tanks, mobile protected firepower, to regain that territory and then that and then hold that territory. I don't think they're going to be able to do it to retake all of Donetsk and Luhansk. There's going to be, I think, some some local successes uh, and and maybe some local successes for the Russians. But Neil, I, I don't see an off ramp for the for Putin. I don't see in an, you know a, a, the, the Ukrainians settling. Uh, for anything less than regaining the territories that have been taken since February 24th. And sadly, you know, I, I think that we are in for a long, bloody war, much longer bloody. It's already a long, bloody war, as I mentioned. It goes back to 2014. But of course, you know, I, I think there are worse things than war. Uh, and, and that would be if if Ukraine was to lose its freedom. And I think the Ukrainian people know that, of course, much better than we do. I was going to go to John in a minute to talk about the economics, because, of course, uh, this is not just uh, a military struggle. It's also a struggle of, of economies and, and sanctions have been a key part uh, of the war from the outset. Uh, but before we go to, to economics, help us understand this war in some kind of historical context. It feels like just in terms of casualties uh, and at intensity, the biggest war since, I don't know, Iran-Iraq, it's certainly a much, much more lethal war than the wars that we associate with the war on terror after 9-11, right? Absolutely. Now, it fits the, the playbook for the Russians that we saw initially in 1999 in Grozny, and that we've seen Russia enable uh, the Syrians and the Iranians and themselves to conduct these campaigns of really mass murder and mass destruction of cities in Aleppo and Syria, for example. But in terms of the exchange of artillery fire on both sides, I think you're quite right to point out the 1980-1988 Iran-Iraq war. It's worth, note, uh, it's worth noting that the Russians have fired more ordnance in this war since February 24th uh, and dropped more ordnance uh, than the United States has in, in, the, in the full wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. You know, a two-decade-long war in the case of, of Afghanistan. So massive amounts of firepower and, and, and artillery. It's also, I think, worth noting that if the casualty figures are correct, that Russia has suffered far more casualties in this in this short 
intense war than they did during the entire their entire wartime experience in Afghanistan. And so um, I think you're right to, to, to call this out as a return of a large scale conventional conflict that I think ought to draw into question some of the assumptions on which we've based some of our you know, force modernization and defense strategy um, planning. Yeah, I want to ask HR question cool. before we go on to economics because I, I miss you guys and, and the chance to, to learn things. I have, I have two puzzles here. Um, one is uh, tactical and the other is strategic. Uh, on the tactical level, what are we doing back to World War One, blasting away artillery at, at each other in, in trenches? Uh, I thought we you fight artillery with with air and, and precision. Um, uh, now, I gather from, from reading that, in fact, behind the scenes, a lot of what's going on is, is the air war, the drone war, the intelligence war, knowing where things are. You know, those four HIMARS systems, if the Russians figure out where they are, they're zero HIMARS system pretty fast. Uh, so that that actually is going on beyond it. But the, the way we if you were in charge of, of fighting the Russians in, in Poland, uh, you wouldn't be sitting there blasting artillery from a trench. You would be doing all sorts of other. So I'm curious why this war has, has kind of gone back to World War I and what the ways are of break, breaking out of that. The strategic question seems to be, are we fighting for a draw? <clears throat> and, and Europe sounded really courageous for a while, and now they seem to be fighting for a draw. Uh, is the US going to provide or be able to provide the massive amounts of, of offensive weaponry it takes for this not to be a draw? And I noticed that uh, Putin um, is, is careful. We were, we've been talking a lot about uh, not angering Putin and to escalate. Putin is very careful not to escalate this to a war with NATO, uh, which I you'll give your opinion, but my view is if, if it were a war of NATO, it would be over in a matter, this war could be over in a matter of two days if the US and NATO decided to make it over in a matter of, or at least as far as the Ukrainian border it would be over in a matter of two days. But Putin's been very careful, for example, not targeting the supply lines of all these lethal weapons, which very clearly endanger his war. He, he, he could do that. So it seems like, He's playing for a draw as well. And strategically, do you see a way out of that? Um, uh, you know, all of us getting tired of this. Now, draws, World War I. I think Neil wrote a book about World War I, where we should have had an armistice around 1915, but everybody had lost so much they couldn't uh, bring themselves to sign the armistice. So maybe that, that's where we're stuck. I hate the idea of being stuck. HR, over to you. Well, you know, I, I think this really goes back to the to the integration of firepower and maneuver. Oftentimes, when we get lazy thinking about future war, we think, hey, really, really, the next war will be fundamentally different from all those that have gone before it. And what happens is you see a reemergence of kind of the idea that firepower can solve the complex problem of uh, uh, so the problem sets that you face uh, in, in, in wartime. It's essentially strategic bombing theory in a new guise that 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 reappears in, in every decade in a new form. In the 90s, it was the revolution in military affairs, right? And, right. and now you're seeing that AI now, right? AI is, is what's going to make firepower and targeting important. So or a paramount importance. And so this is a, an approach to war in which targeting equals tactics, which equals operations, which equals strategy. And really what's important if you want to achieve a, a sustainable political outcome in war is to be able to occupy territory and control it to, and to be able to defeat the armed forces of, of that defending nation. Uh, the Russians demonstrate that they were unable to do that in a way that they were unable to do it in 1914 when they opened World War One, and uh, and and the you know the 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 far the, the northernmost Prussian did not brush the channel with his sleeve as as von Molka 
uh, had, had anticipated, uh, and 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 that army was stopped, and you had a, a stalemated war, an extremely costly war. The answer to that on the British side was massive bombardment. They thought this would be this what the, the Germans called Materialschlacht, material war. Uh, on the eve of the Battle of the Somme, General Rawlinson uh, uh, <laughs> uh, organized and conducted a massive bombardment with millions of artillery rounds fired. In his orders of the day to the British Eighth Army, he wrote, don't worry, boys, you'll be able to go over the top with a walking stick. Not even a rat will have survived the bombardment. 60,000 casualties in three hours is what the what the British suffered because they discounted the importance of maneuver, of providing depth in the defense, which the Germans did, and then having an elastic defense in which they counterattacked at the local level where they saw opportunities. The Germans then studied really how to break the stalemate in World War I, and they, they shifted to stormtroop tactics or infiltration tactics. They trained units to maneuver, to be able to penetrate enemy defenses and go for the soft spots in enemy defenses, command posts, to take out the artillery systems from the rear. But, you know, the automotive revolution had not really caught on yet, and those offensives could not be sustained. They were conducted at the speed of the boot, and therefore the 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 uh, the, the allies could could reposition and, and, and blunt and, and, and stop that. But if I could, HR, just, so, just but, to, in the context of, of Ukraine, Aren't yeah. we at the city? So Ukraine is very, uh, it's very short on skilled soldiers. Uh, this takes a lot of training. Now it has a bunch of different weapon systems with different instruction manuals and different supply lines. So, so getting to that point is not going to be easy for Ukraine easy. either. No. And we're all running out of munitions. Uh, the U.S. is running out of munitions and we don't have factories to make them anymore, as, as, as I gather. So um, it's, it's right. not going to be that easy. And it's the components that go into the munitions. And uh, absolutely. So I, I think this is what I, I was alluding to at the outset about we have to really revisit the assumptions on which our defense strategies and our defense budgets and our and and our our, our vision of future war has been based, you know. And and I think they've they've turned out to be, you know, uh, wrong, you know, and and war will not be, you know, fast, cheap, and based on exclusively precision. Uh, munitions and so forth. And targeting does not equal tactics, does not equal operations and strategy. And you're right. John, it takes time to train units who have not only the skill, but also the confidence to close with the enemy in close combat, to integrate fires in, and maneuver uh, in a way that allows you to seize the initiative. You have to be able to conduct effective reconnaissance. You don't want to do what the Russians are doing with these counter with these attacks now in Donetsk and Luhansk because they're, they're impaling themselves on Ukrainian defenses, right? I mean, what you want to do is to find out you know where defenses are strong and avoid them. You know the the analogy that's been that, that's used oftentimes is water flowing through a stream. You want to avoid the rocks and flow around uh, the, the, the strong defenses and, and attack weakness and penetrate the defense and turn the enemy out of defensive positions. You want to seize not only a positional advantage by by uh, by you know by attacking where it, it, the enemy's weak but also a temporal advantage by imposing a tempo of events and a pace of operations like the German offensive in 1940 did against France that, that, that the enemy cannot, the defending force cannot respond to. Uh, and, and then that, that turns into a psychological advantage. Uh, and and that's, that's what leads to defeat. Right? Defeat is convincing your enemy that your enemy has been defeated. And, and this is maneuver warfare. This is what we tend to discount in peacetime and when we try to reduce war to a targeting exercise. Going to John's strategic question, uh, are both sides playing for a draw? I would say no, because right now Russia controls about 
of Ukraine's territory. And the Foreign Minister Lavrov uh, upped the game uh, this week by saying that, in fact, uh, the uh, Russians intended to annex not just the Donbass, but potentially also some of the territory around Kherson. Uh, I certainly don't see a draw there uh, because I think what's going to happen is that at some point later this year, assuming that Ukrainian counteroffensives have not been overwhelmingly successful, which I, I think you're right, HR, is pretty unlikely, I assume Putin declares victory and simply declares that uh, the partition of Ukraine has has happened. And uh, and that's the end of the show, folks. Uh, taking advantage of the fact, now we get to the economics, that by that time, uh, the weakness of the European position with respect uh, to dependence on uh, Russian energy will have caused Western unity to unravel. It's already clearly unraveling. Uh, one of the most ardent supporters of Ukraine has uh, fallen from power in London, Boris Johnson, uh, and now uh, Mario Draghi, the Italian prime minister, who was strongly uh, in favour of uh, of the war, is resigning in Italy uh, with the prospect of a right-wing Italian government perhaps as soon as September. If I fast forward from the hot weather we'll talk about later to the cold weather that will doubtless come later in the year, I see a moment when, when Putin can achieve something that looks a lot like victory. Uh, and that's when it gets really difficult, not only for Volodymyr Zelensky, the Ukrainian president, but also for the US government. $50 billion worth of support, military and non-military, is hard uh, to do every six months for the foreseeable future, especially when you're in the in, in the grip of an inflation crisis that you failed to see coming last year. How much support can Ukraine count on uh, from the United States if the war drags on uh, into next year. I think there'll be great pressure from Europe and perhaps from some elements in the United States for Ukraine to settle and accept that the Donbass is gone. I don't think Ukraine's going to want to do that. I don't think there's a government in Ukraine that could do that. But you can see where Putin's going here, and you can see why he thinks colder weather and U U Europe's energy crisis uh, are really the the Trump cards. So let me throw an economics question to you, John. Sanctions were supposed to be a deterrent last year. They weren't. Then they were supposed to be the key uh, to defeating Russia. That doesn't seem to have happened. And in fact, the ruble did a pretty brief round trip uh, before actually becoming somewhat uh, stronger uh, after the initial phase of the war. Uh, it doesn't look as if the Russian economy is on its knees. Uh, though it's certainly true, isn't it, that the Russians don't have access to much sophisticated weaponry now because they simply can't import the, the semiconductors that they would need to manufacture it. So, so John, if you, if you think about this in economic terms, who's winning and could there be, in fact, a Russian victory of sorts, even if it's not the total subjugation of Ukraine that they set out to achieve initially? Uh, yeah, um, I, I think, you know, HR said uh, uh, something about what, what he said, the illusion that strategic bombing would allow you painless victories. The other illusion is that sanctions will allow you painless victories. And uh, I think we're going to learn that one as well. Um, 
with, with Ukraine is, uh, it's in a financial and economic, uh, very difficult situation. Its economy really isn't working. So uh, this war is paid for by us in Europe and, and as long as we feel like doing it. Now, $50 billion, uh, I, I hate to tell you how things work in Washington, that's couch change. They just threw, I think, $270 billion at, uh, at uh, chip manufacturers for their latest piece of pork. They're going to throw trillions at electric cars and windmills and God knows what all else. Uh, so we certainly have the capacity to pay this. I think I'll, I'll echo HR. The question is, do we and does Europe have the will to do it? Uh, do we think that getting Russia out of Ukraine and what that means for the world going forward is important enough to keep supporting Ukraine militarily? Uh, and and uh, so, you know, we have to keep we really have to ramp, ramp up the kind of production and ramp, ramp up the financial support if uh, they're going to win. And I, I agree. I think what Putin's playing for and and uh, knowing the fecklessness of our leaders, what is likely is that um, uh, Putin announces that um, we, we've won. And he, I, I read Lavrov's thing, too. What, what they're looking for is basically a, a weak uh, Ukraine, a weak and economically devastated Ukraine. Well, uh, they'll get that, too. Um, now, uh, you know, could Europe do it? Yes, if we wanted to. Um, the uh, you know the the academics that I've seen uh, say you can the magic of substitution says that as as our sanctions don't work on other countries so well, uh, Europe can get around a lack of uh, a lack of gas uh, if they want to do it flexibly. They seem to be determined to shoot themselves in the foot on this department. Uh, you know, the way you survive sanctions is by being a flexible economy that does as best as it can in sharply changed circumstances. You do not, dear Germany, turn off your three remaining nuclear power plants, Spain too. That's absolute insanity. They are preparing already to ration gas this winter. Uh, now, this is, this is not an inequality thing. This is about which industry gets gas. And industries are already running to get themselves declared essential so that they get the gas. It's political allocation rather than economic allocation. The only way to run an economy uh, flexibly during, a, during a, a time like that is to let the price go up, even if it looks like inflation, uh, in order to get the gas to the most practical, the places that really need it, not the ones that don't. So Europe seems to be of a mind to make this whole matter worse for themselves, uh, let alone the will to keep going, and then to provide Ukraine both with the financial assistance and the military assistance it needs if if they're going to take back the territory, which is the only way the West doesn't just you know participate in our continuing slow decay. So, John, we had a period uh, late February through March when Ukraine was the number one story in the United States and around the world, and you uh, and INHR discussed how long that would last, and it lasted until about the Oscars, I think. Uh, right now, the number one issue domestically in the United States by a country mile is inflation. And of course, uh, the war is uh, is not the sole cause of inflation. It's made matters worse. Uh, but the inflation problem dates back uh, to decisions that were made last year. Uh, and I want you to talk about where inflation goes from here, because it seems to me that for an administration that has uh, a 9% inflation rate and pretty dismal approval ratings, it's getting harder and harder to justify uh, uh, the war, support for a war in Europe, one consequence of which is clearly to exacerbate the costs of energy and food around the world. So I would guess if inflation had peaked and was about to come down, 
then the pressure would be somewhat less. But if inflation is going to persist, if it's going to start feeling like we discussed in previous shows like the 1970s, then it's going to start being a lot harder to justify even even a modest sum like $50 billion every five or six months. So I want you to answer the big question, John. Uh, Where does inflation go from here? Uh, Has the Fed done enough? Uh, Is there going to be a belated victory for team transitory? Or is this going to turn out to be a kind of replay of the 1970s where the Fed tightens a bit and then stops because it thinks it's caused a recession and we we find ourselves stuck with, with high inflation uh, for not just months, but years. Could be. Uh, <laughs> um, so one thing about inflation is nobody really knows. Uh, inflation, uh, and I'll just say, you know, what I can tell you with my great expertise in monetary policy is that nobody really knows. And if they tell you they really know, they're, they're tooting stuff. Um, this, this, and, and I will now a little more, my, my view, the Fed's power here is much more limited than people think. This inflation fundamentally came from fiscal policy. Milton Friedman said, if you if you throw money from helicopters, you get inflation. Our government threw $5 trillion from helicopters. Surprise, surprise, we've got inflation. Th- that's it. Uh, the, the, war is a, is, the war is a price change. It's not inflation. The costs of the war, even $50 billion every six months, that's nothing compared to World War II. Uh, this is not relative to the US government's taxing and spending ability. Uh, this, this, is, this is still quite small. Uh, so the Fed's position is, can it counter fundamentally an inflation that came from out of control fiscal policy? It's like they've got their hands on the handbrake, but the gas pedal is still is still floored. The view that inflation is always and everywhere only a monetary phenomenon is false. And we just saw it. It came from this fiscal policy. Somebody so now what, what can the Fed do about it? The Fed can raise really write a book about that, John. Yes, uh, yes. And we'll plug that soon. Uh, the uh, What can the Fed do about this inflation that comes from somewhere else? Well, you know, they, they, they're like the handbrake. They, they can raise interest rates, which will cause push us towards recession, slow the economy, and then through some magic and, and, and dead chickens and, and smoke and mirrors called the Phillips curve, they hope that slowing the economy down will lower inflation. Uh, that's a blunt instrument. And the minute it actually turns into a recession, Congress is going to explode. When real interest rates flow onto the, uh, onto the budget and start raising interest costs, everyone's going to explode. Uh, they're, they're in a very difficult position if that's what we're relying on. Uh, so we're going to see a test, really. I'll put it one of the reasons for our, our, our that we don't really know what's going to happen is there's two competing histories. One is the history of the 1970s that you mentioned, where the Fed, the standard way we think about this, the Fed was late to the party, didn't raise interest rates fast enough. When it did raise interest rates, caused recessions, backed off too soon, and 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 things got worse. Uh, under that reading of it, we're headed. It's 1972. Uh, the other history is the history of the 2010s, where the Fed, the ECB, the Bank of Japan did absolutely nothing to interest rates, just sat there, and inflation widely predicted. It was exactly the negative of now. Deflation started to happen. Central banks couldn't do anything about it because they were stuck at zero, and nonetheless, nothing happened to inflation. That history argues that inflation could go way out on its own, especially if we solve this uh, outstanding fiscal problem without much action from the Fed. Uh, so we'll see. Uh, the traditional view says until you get interest rates above inflation for a sustained period of time, we're talking right now with 9% inflation, 10, 11, 12% and more interest rates and leave it there through a horrible recession, you won't get rid of inflation. 
Uh, the other view says that, well, like the 2010s, when the other pressures go away, even with moderate interest rate rate rises, uh, things will come out. Uh, I don't know. Uh, we'll find out. But the one thing I do want to say, what we'll, we are now full of absolute silliness on inflation from, from a lot of parties. And I think the, the prize for silliness goes to the president for, uh, for yelling at gas stations to lower their prices as the way to stop inflation. I mean, it's, it's been dog ate my homework and supply shocks and monopolies and the greedy chicken producers and everything else but monetary and fiscal policy for a long time. But this one, uh, you know, if, if you actually persuaded gas stations to lower their prices, what would you get? Lines. There's only so much gas to go around. High prices are the way that we, we ration the existing supply. And you're either going to ration it by, by uh, high prices or you're going to ration it by lines. It, it just yelling at people to lower inflation is medieval. And that this should come out tells you some of the chaos and, and at best muddy thinking, at, at worst, just um, political sp spinning rather than serious policy going on. So we're going to have to get serious before we get rid of it. inflation goes away when governments run serious economic policies, fiscal, monetary, microeconomic, let economies grow, um, uh, be able to repay your debts. Since, you know, that's what it's going to take. You know, John, it's, it's fascinating how much of the debate about inflation has been fiscal amongst the people who were serious about it. I was looking back at Larry Summers's article uh, from February last year and Michael Bordeaux, our colleague, also got it right, Mohamed El Arian. And they did, like you, focus on the fiscal side. But there is an argument, isn't there, that the Fed was as much to blame in that they had M2 growing at 20% plus year on year. And even as velocity recovered, they just stood pat and uh, kept the easiest monetary policy uh, going. And I, I'm inclined to think that, that the Fed shouldn't get off the hook too easily. I They should really have been they should have been tightening monetary policy by at least the second quarter of of last year. Looking looking at just the monetary data, isn't that just the biggest monetary policy mistake we've seen since the seventies? So I'm sorry, M two doesn't matter. <laughs> we uh, M two is uh, you're breaking uh, my heart. The monetarists listening to the show are, are are in tears. There's distress. There's distress, but they're wrong. Matter? I'm sorry. It, it, it's a. It just happens not to be the way our world works. The Fed does not control the money supply. Uh, M2, most of it pays interest. Uh, M2 and government debt are essentially perfect substitutes. We've been that way for a while. Monetary policy is about interest rates. And you are right that certainly by historical standards, the Fed didn't cause this inflation. The fiscal policy set it off, but the Fed did not react to it. Right. It was slower, not even in the 1970s, did the Fed ever wait a full year before doing anything. So by that conventional view that um, inflation is controlled by the Fed raising interest rates more than one for one with inflation promptly, you're absolutely right. And it's certainly, it's scandalous they didn't see it coming. Yeah, 1,500 PhD economists, uh, you know, and, and an institution whose first job is price level stability, and that they were so completely surprised like this. It's like a general, if HR said, well, well, I wasn't expecting them to come in on the left flank. We, we just, you know, that wasn't in our forecast. HR would be canned immediately, court-martial. Uh, so so there is certainly blame there in the Fed for not reacting quickly enough. And it, it's amazing to me that the, the Fed is telling us that inflation will be back at two, close to 2% in just a couple of years. Now, I, you kind of hedged earlier about where inflation is going, but I assume you don't believe that projection. That seems really unlikely to me. 
I, I, you know, to the extent I'm willing to make projections, having been wrong so many times in the past, uh, I, I think that we're we're in for a longer slog on inflation than is common. Then certainly the Fed's project, the Fed's projections, uh, inflation does go away without the Fed ever raising interest rates above inflation, and it goes away in a year or two and goes yeah. right back to the magic two percent. Good luck with that. This is yeah. going to be a long, hard slog, whether it's monetary policy, fiscal policy, or or what what else. But obviously, part of the story here has been uh, supply disruption uh, caused by the pandemic, which has clearly disrupted labor markets. It's also partly a story of uh, supply disruption caused by the war in Ukraine. There's one piece of good news, if you could call it that, uh, for those who uh, are worried about inflation, and that's what's happening in China, where in the last quarter for which we have data, the the economy actually contracted. Now, when I look at what's going on in China, I think it really ought to be the biggest story of the moment, because here is the second largest economy in the world, which has been for decades one of the fastest growing, and it stopped dead in its tracks. This is partly because of Xi Jinping's zero COVID COVID policy, which is basically unsustainable in the face of Omicron variants. Uh, The effect of lockdowns, uh, some of which have been extraordinarily draconian, has been to scare Chinese uh, consumers out of spending. Uh, But there's something else going on in China, which I would be very worried about if I were President Xi, and that is that the real estate sector seems to be in in free fall. So the three of us are always debating China. This seems like a good moment to come back and and take a look at what's going on. Obviously, if if China's demand suddenly stops dead, at least some of the pressure uh, on global commodity prices comes off. And you can see that things like copper have been falling off a cliff. But I guess the question I have is, what the heck is going on in China? And and what does it imply? Uh, Let's just turn to HR for a second. Uh, HR, you, you followed China closely. You played a key part in reassessing the U.S. view of China as a national security threat. What do you think is going on there, and where does it lead if the Chinese economic miracle is actually over? And, and, and tell us about politics too. Well, yeah. Well, Neil, Neil and, doing? and John, so I want to hear from I want to hear from both of you on this. But what, what I hope we finally do is is to is is, is to no longer believe that. Uh, Xi Jinping will act uh, based on the, the way that that we might act when confronted with an economic crisis. I think it's really clear, especially since the beginning of COVID, that the party prioritizes its effort to maintain its exclusive grip on power, even when that leads to nonsensical economic decisions. Right? The, that we didn't mention the crackdown, you know, on 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 the tech sector, other sectors of the economy. Um, the you know the tutoring uh, industry just com- completely went away. Uh, healthcare is next on the chopping block potentially, but that's all because the party is fearful of losing this exclusive grip on power, and will prioritize. You know, its control is obsessed with control, and you know, I, you know, I think your your point on the the real estate sector is immensely important. The people who want to keep the bottom from falling out of Chinese stocks and bonds. Keep saying, well, that's really compartmentalized. It won't be that big of a deal. But what I'd love to hear your, your thoughts, because it seems to me the way that they've been able to stoke economic growth in the past is with local governments, provincial governments, selling land, generating capital, and investing that capital, often poorly, which results in you know an overproduction uh, and, and, uh, and, and overstocks uh, that then are dumped on the international market at low prices. And they take a loss, but they don't really care because it's kind of a Ponzi scheme. You know, I mean, to me, it's, it looks like a Ponzi scheme from the outside as a as a washed up general looking at this. So 
hey, I, I think that the time is now. I mean, the one thing I would say is you know, another way they've been able to compensate for it is with the inflow of uh, of foreign investment, dumb money, and then also venture capital money that is the scaffolding that holds up their mercantilist state-driven model. Maybe if we stop underwriting our own demise, you know, we we might uh, we might be able to uh, you know begin to compete more effectively and force you know the Chinese Communist Party to take a different path. But let, I mean, these are just some of my thoughts on it, but I, I want to know how serious you think it is. I think it's serious, but I'm not a, a trained economist or economic historian like you guys. Well, let me, before we get into the economics again, let me just, let me just ask you a very specific geopolitical question. Do you think an economic crisis is going to make China more or less aggressive on questions such as Taiwan? Yeah, more aggressive. But but you know this and this and this is because I think Xi Jinping will see a fleeting window of opportunity that if he doesn't act now he's going to lose competitive advantage. You know the, the he's going to realize hey they're not going to grow rich before they grow old. They can't grow out of the middle income trap. And then also you know what what a better way to divert the population's disappointment in not meeting their expectations economically than to stoke jingoistic nationalism. In fact, he's already doing it, Neil. If you saw you know, the speech he gave on the Korean War, I think is quite instructive, in which he described Mao's decision to intervene in Korea in the war you know, against American aggression, as they call it, as, as a preemptive war in which Mao delivered one blow to prevent 100. And in that speech, which has just recently been translated, he also then alluded to Taiwan. It wasn't an explicit connection in terms of a potential invasion of, of Taiwan, but it was implicit. And then he told the Chinese people, we're going to have to make sacrifices uh, to, to, to achieve the vision of national rejuvenation. He's preparing them, I think, for, for maybe deprivations associated uh, with wartime. I think he's preparing the Chinese people for war. And of course, we're focused very much on Taiwan, but I think the South China Sea is probably the most likely flashpoint at this time, where the Chinese, uh, the People's Liberation Army Navy has, and and the, the maritime militia and this Coast Guard with with uh, vessels that are repainted from Navy colors to Coast, Coast Guard colors are becoming much more aggressive. Let, let me ask you before, again, before we go to economics, because that's the way I got to learn for you guys. I, I also see, especially with China in trouble politically, but and, and a long uh, grinding war in Ukraine uh, with sanctions and material shortage problems, uh, we seem to be sort of uh, an axis is forming between China, Russia, uh, Iran, uh, sad to see uh, Turkey there too. Uh, Putin's visit to the Middle East seemed to go a whole lot better than our dear leader's uh, fist bump uh, adventure. Uh, this is this is particularly bad news for the geopolitical aspect, isn't it? Yeah, you know, I, I think so. I mean, I, but but I'll tell you, this doesn't mean it's over, right? I mean, you know, what cocktail party do you want to go to? You know what I mean? What the one with? You know, well, the one that I'm. I mean, I, I mean, the one with. I mean, I think we have a much stronger alliance and 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 more appeal to those who are sitting on the fence. But those sitting on the fence, guess what they get to do? They get yeah, to play the, us the, off against each other, right? And this the, is the, the Salon de Refusés gets together, and uh, you know they 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 maybe would like to come to our cocktail party, but they're not allowed. So they're making a cocktail party of their own, and that one has vodka in it. No, they are, and I I do think okay, this you know this this strategic agreement that that uh, that China signed with uh, with Iran, there's this this the, you know Putin's 
uh, recent uh, visit as well. I mean, all of this is designed to solidify an axis, you know, that 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 uh, that can challenge uh, the the free world, you know, and and I, we don't want to underestimate that. I mean, I think that there is a potential for cascading crises. You know, the the, the Iranians just they just announced recently, right, that 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 they are at a nuclear weapons threshold capability in the nuclear program, which they deny ever existed, right? So so I, I think that. That uh, the chances, for example, of an Israeli defense force strike uh, against Iran nuclear facilities is like ninety eight percent. You know, it's just a question of timing. I think. And, this is and, what uh, I, I, I agree with that. I think one of the things that's really going to be challenging about the next few years is that we could get a crisis in the Far East, we could get a crisis in the Middle East before the crisis in Eastern Europe is even over. Uh, and this is one reason why I think that that nineteen seventies analogy may may come in handy because. Just as 1973 in the Middle East was the beginning of a whole series of, of geopolitical crises, my sense is that the war in Ukraine is, is just the beginning of, of a succession of crises in different parts of the world. But or, you know, God, the, or God forbid, Neil, you know, we've said this before, not to overuse it, but in 1939, you know. Well, the, the risk, of course, that we go to something more World War II-like is more, I think, in the nuclear domain, because it's not easy for me to imagine conventional warfare on a scale on the scale that we saw in 1939. By 1939 standards, what's going on in Ukraine is still really pretty small scale. But we could find ourselves in 1945 if uh, a nuclear weapon were used. Uh, and it's, of course, this problem of nuclear proliferation that is making the world a more and more dangerous place. I keep saying to people who tell me stories about amazingly successful Ukrainian counteroffensives. If there is an amazingly successful Ukrainian counteroffensive, that is going to put Putin back on uh, the mode of, of rattling his nuclear saber. Uh, and that's another reason why I don't think a draw is a very likely outcome. But let me bring it back to the China problem, because I think this is really a very, a very interesting one. If Xi Jinping is under as much pressure as I think he is, then the time horizon for action over Taiwan may be shorter than the, the expert consensus. And you, you made this point, HR, a minute ago, that there's a sort of window of opportunity, a window of opportunity when we're focused on Ukraine, when weapons that were supposed to go to Taiwan are going to Ukraine, a window of opportunity before we've really got uh, Taiwan in a position to defend itself as well as Ukraine did, a window of opportunity when we don't really have a credible war plan for the eventuality of, uh, of a Chinese invasion. So let me put you on the spot, HR. When do you think this could happen? What kind of time frame seems realistic for the next Taiwan crisis, or if you prefer, the South China Sea crisis that you talked about? Well, you know, I think it's after the Taiwanese election in 2024. And the reason I think that is because after the Communist Party Congress in October, November, when Xi Jinping will become, you know, leader for, for life, chairman for life and the new, you know, the, the next Mao Zedong, um, he will feel the pressure to make good on the promises he's made. He says, you know, Taiwan is not a is not a, a, pro, a problem that can be deferred. It's something that has to be resolved in this generation, not in future generations. And and uh, but I think he will try to do everything he can short of an invasion between the, the Communist Party Congress and 2024. He'll try to buy off elites. He'll try to he'll launch a major information warfare campaign. He'll use economic coercion. He'll try to get the KMT into power. Because ultimately, he'll make one last ditch effort to get annexation by invitation. Well, you know, he's not going to get it, right? He's not going to get it because the Taiwanese have learned vicariously because of the fate of, of Hong Kong, but also the fate of, of Ukraine as, as well. 
Uh, and I think the, the will, and if you've seen the polls in Taiwan, yeah. uh, the, the, the will of the Taiwanese people seem to be going way up, especially among the young population. So it's a race, Neil, I think, to 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 uh, establish deterrence by denial you know, by 2024. Because I think the period of maximum danger is after uh, the elections in Taiwan in 2024. Okay, I have one, I have one more thing, John. Can I, oh, Bear sorry. with me, because uh, in my capacity as moderator, I get to cut you off. Oh, God, it's great power. Um, <laughs> the, uh, the last thing I want to talk about is the thing that all British people love to talk about, namely the weather. Uh, the uh, United Kingdom just had its hottest day on record uh, I don't like that word unprecedented. It gets overused by journalists. But we do have hundreds of years of data on the British weather and a 40 degree centigrade, 100 plus degree Fahrenheit uh, temperature reading in London is unprecedented. Uh, and you can imagine the kind of conversations that this has elicited. And it's not just the UK. Europe has been extraordinarily hot and uh, parts of the United States are unseasonably hot at the moment. You know what that means, don't you, good fellows? That means that the climate uh, gang get on the air and tell us the end is nigh, as we foresaw, this is climate change, and we must immediately uh, accelerate our elimination of uh, hydrocarbons of fossil fuels, Joe Biden doubling down on Green New Deals. I think we should talk about the weather, but we should also very distinctly talk about climate, which is something else. Uh, John, why don't you go first? How how do you think about unseasonably hot summer weather? Does it make you more inclined to listen to Greta Thunberg? I'm guessing probably not. Oh, I, well, I, I read the IPCC reports and, and uh, <clears throat> they say the climate's getting hotter. I, I had the, the uh, interesting experience this weekend. I, I was driving through uh, Sacramento, uh, listening to the radio um, uh, on, on coverage and the coverage was nonstop on, on it's 102 degrees in the shade. Of course, I'm driving through Sacramento where it's 104 degrees in the shade because it's been 104 degrees in the shade in Sacramento in the summer since time immemorial and, and nobody's out there uh, having fits about it. Um, and yes, indeed, the, the entire response was this means we have to double down on, on, on windmills and solar panels and, and get rid of fossil fuels. Uh, I feel like uh, Europe especially, but the U.S. too, has been trapped by a millenarian cult. And, and let me, yes, climate change is happening. Uh, but even if we do the full Greta Thunberg, that only limits the increase in temperature in the next hundred years, uh, down to one and a half degrees from maybe two and a half degrees. All of Europe's climate uh, stuff at best will mean it's it's 2.6, not 1.6 degrees hotter in the summer rather than 1.8 degrees hotter in the summer. And I may be overstating the effects of Europe's climate policy in a hundred years. And so it's hot, it's going to get hotter. That is a fact. What do you do about this? Do you strangle your economies? Do you, do you on, on the fiction that the United Kingdom, where I hate to tell you, it's dark in the winter and rainy all year long, can heat your houses with windmills and solar panels? Or do you do what they do in Sacramento? by air conditioners, well, or both. And it was interesting, nobody mentioned maybe, so our great grandchildren might be 0.2 degrees uh, cooler than they would otherwise be. It's still gonna get hotter. This is not gonna, nothing that the climate lobby does is gonna make it in the next year, 10 years, 100 years, cooler than it is now. It's simply gonna make the rise in temperature a little bit slower. But we don't even talk about, let's buy some air conditioners and nuclear plants to run them. 
It was very interesting. The one expert was interviewed. This was, I think, the BBC expert at the Center for something or other on climate in Oxford. Asked about air conditioners, which Europeans don't have, by the way. I looked up the numbers. Something ninety-eight percent of American houses are new homes are built with air conditioners. Hey, when I when I lived when I lived in Pinner, Neil, I didn't have an air conditioner, and John, no air conditioning. So asked about air (laughs) conditioning, you didn't need it much. Well, but now you're going to need it. Asked about air conditioners. The great Puba said, oh, the cost would be prohibitive. And what's the cost going to be of the solar panels and windmills and turning off carbon? This I'm reminded, I'll, I'll end soon, Neil, but I'm on a rant on this one. <laughs> yes, I'm reminded I of our off. ancestors in the great plague of 1350, who rather than do what we now know to do about it, uh, we're told, put on hair shirts, uh, repent for your sins and prepare for the next world. We are literally talking about preparing for the next world at best. We're talking about our great grandchildren getting 0.2 degrees less warmth. That's at best what they're talking about, as opposed to actually doing something now that would help people with the, it's it's going to get hotter and cli- and energy or climate policies that are not completely self-defeating. I mean, turning off your nuclear power plants, you're out of your mind. Okay, end of rant. That's my view on the subject. Yeah, t- two thoughts occur to me. One is that these measures in the short run will only compound inflationary problems. I mean, the winter of discontent that's coming to Europe with uh, the costs of 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 energy, I think, will be politically let me, let me very. Correct you on this, Neil. And the same thing was true with with your China comment. If we if we go into the economics, I was going to complain about that. We should not wish for China to explode. Especially, we should not wish it on on inflationary grounds. Inflation is printing up too much money in debt. Uh, you're confusing inflation with prices going up. Um, and, and so, you know, everything else prices going, your wages going down and the energy price staying the same is just as much impoverishment as your wages staying the same and energy prices going up. So let, let's talk about the relative prices, the impoverishment of not having enough energy, going back to the way that, you know, your ancestors who knew how to pronounce Cochrane right, uh, you know, they lived in, in cold misery all winter long. That's, that's, the, that's the issue, not, not whether we have inflation or not. But there is, I mean, the point I'm really trying to make is not an economic one, it's a political one, that if you pursue policies that limit the exploitation of natural gas, limit investment in uh, in oil, uh, then you're going to compound the monetary and fiscal mistakes because there will be significantly reduced supply of hydrocarbons to uh, fuel energy, generate electricity and, and heat people's homes. And this brings us full circle, doesn't it, gentlemen? Because it seems to me that uh, warm though it may be at the moment, if it's cold in the winter, uh, then there's going to be a lot of political pushback and not just uh, against the pursuit of a war that obviously disrupts the energy market. I think there'll be pushback against Green New Deals. I mean, I don't know how you sell the Green New Deal with uh, if its consequence, if it turns out that a high price of carbon means, in fact, that the cost of fueling a car and heating a home has gone up in such a way that it significantly impacts uh, the living standards of, of the average household. So let's think a little bit in conclusion about about the politics of the winter of 2022-23. My hunch is that if it's a cold winter in Europe and in the United States, but especially in Europe, uh, that is going to be the moment of maximum leverage for the axis of, what is it, the axis of ill will, shall we call it, uh, that we currently confront with, with Russia exploiting divisions uh, within the West in order to try to achieve the kind of victory that I think Putin now 
has in mind. Uh, HR, what price Western unity in a cold winter? Yeah. Well, I think there's a counterbalance to it, Neil, which I'd like to highlight. I think we have to call it, instead of the war in Ukraine, we have to talk about it as Russia's renewed invasion of Ukraine and and keep the focus on Russian aggression. I think what, what the Ukrainians and, and others will be able to do this, or the international media, it's important to note that, you know, that they are deporting you know, thousands and thousands of Ukrainians to Russia to try to change the demographics. They're, you know, they're, they're, uh, you know, they're over 60% of the children in Ukraine are displaced. So I just think that our morality, you know, is going to, to counterbalance the lack of will associated with, you know, scarcity of, of, of Russian hydrocarbons. The, the other, the other aspect of this though, I think too, you know, has to, has to do with just, you know, um, you know, the, the European will uh, to sustain the effort overall. I'm more optimistic about it, Neil. I think when I, when I talk to friends in Europe, uh, German politicians, for for example, they think that that uh, that 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 the whole the balance has shifted really against against those who were apologists for the Russians for so many years. And you know, even the SPD within the SPD, I think there's a great deal more will than there has been in the past. So I don't know. I, I'm you know I'm, I'm I'm concerned as you are. But one of the reasons I'm more optimistic about European will is that every European friend I've talked to in the last several weeks has talked about it themselves, saying they're concerned about it. So I I, I hope that 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 the you know the the pressure that's going to be on the European people in terms of scarcity of energy uh, will not diminish the will to confront Russia and support Ukraine. I feel pretty good about it. I, I mean, it's not you know I, I'm not complacent about it, but I, I think we're going to be able to sustain the effort. I, I would say the issue is not so much support for the war in Ukraine, but the domestic political question. Uh, and the question that I'm curious about, and I'll, I'll phrase this as a question for you, Neil, who know more about European politics than I do. When do the peasants with pitchforks get up and say, you, you the bien-pensant elite, are a bunch of nudniks and you need to get out? Uh, how, how cold does it have to get uh, before that happens? Now, America is a good deal more democratic than Europe. I know when that's going to happen in the US. Uh, um, it's going to happen November 2022. Uh, Europe is much more insulated by a technocratic aristocratic elite, which has gone off uh, on this climate banquet. Even I've, I've been reading the European Central Bank is full in on we're going to subsidize the Green New Deal and we're going to turn off, we're going to turn off all investment in fossil fuels uh, with very little democratic representation. The, Boris Johnson was a Tory. He was a conservative, and yet he was in there on, on the net zero stuff and, and the same problem. So when does the average European say this is crazy? Uh, you have to heat your houses. Your choices are nuclear or natural gas if you want to heat houses in the winter. Windmills don't do it. Well, uh, so the way I wonder when, when does that popular uprising happen and throw the bums out? Uh, well, the, the, the Europeans learned from observing what happened in France with the so-called yellow vest, the gilet jaune, the danger of letting consumers feel higher energy uh, costs directly. And so what's going to happen is that consumers will be protected uh, even if it means all kinds of subsidies. So the strain will be taken, as so often in European history, by public finance to protect consumers from economic uh, realities. That's what's going to happen. And then it becomes a problem, ultimately, for the European Central Bank, because you're seeing a kind of erosion of, of fiscal discipline. Right, I'm stopping it right there, because anybody who begins talking about European fiscal discipline is going to send his audience to sleep. And we have talked uh, quite enough. Uh, it's summer, and we should really be heading to beaches to cool down. And of course, to read. So lightning round, 
gentlemen. Well, what are we reading as we uh, enjoy these uh, hot summer days? I'll go first to give you time to think because I've sprung this on you. I had the most idyllic time on a sailboat off Cornwall, sailing to the Scilly Isles, reading in the brief moments of respite from yanking on ropes, Thomas Hardy's The Return of the Native. I'd never read it before. It's an absolutely dazzling book. And if you're stuck for something to read, get back into Hardy, The Return of the Native. It's got the most wonderful femme fatale in it. And I do like books with femme fatale. HR, what are you reading? So I'm not reading anything as uh, as erudite as that. Uh, I'm reading, but I'm reading Frank Decoder's book. Just finished it. How to be a dictator. It's a phenomenal book, and it's a survey of dictators and how they consolidated power, remained in power, and then and then ultimately were, were uh, lost power uh, in in the 20th century. But if I can mention a second book, Michael Gordon's Degrade and Destroy: His History of the Campaign Against ISIS has just come out. And Michael Gordon, you know, is a, a very accomplished, very good uh, reporter, uh, I think now for the Wall Street Journal. Uh, but he's he produces books that are the best first cut of history. And he's done it again uh, with this book on the campaign against ISIS in Iraq and Syria. It's a sign the world isn't going entirely to hell in a handcart that we hardly ever hear of ISIS these days, isn't it? Good recommendation. Uh, John, I know you're writing a book. That's the big book on the fiscal theory of inflation. Uh, but what are you reading when you're not writing? Yeah, I'm, I'm sorry to, to disappoint you. I, in the last two weeks, I have been reading uh, about 23 hours a day, the final proofs of fiscal theory of the price level. So I, I uh, can't offer any uh, great suggestions other than that one. We'll, well that's, a great, that's a great suggestion. I'm not sure if you can already pre-order the book. If not, uh, we'll let you know when you can. But uh, economists don't often write books. They're not encouraged to. You don't get points <laughs> like a referee journal article. But when John Cochran's book comes out, ladies and gentlemen, don't miss it. It will be paradigm shifting. I think that's all we've got time for. Plugging a book that hasn't been published yet is obviously a mugs game. We'll do one more show this summer at some point in August. Uh, but for now, I think that just about uh, does it from uh, this edition uh, of Goodfellows. I can't remember what it is that Bill Whalen says at the end of each show, and I'm therefore not going to try and say it. I'll simply wish uh, everybody watching and listening an absolutely wonderful summer and do do try and stay cool if you can if you enjoyed this show and are interested in listening to more content featuring hr mcmaster subscribe to battlegrounds also available at hoover.org battlegrounds <laughs>